the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Coming up this hour, we're talking vaccines, religious liberty, and then we're joined by John Fuller, co-host of the Focus on the Family daily broadcast. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, everybody. Happy Tuesday. Welcome to The Common Good here on AM 1160. Hope for your life. My name is Brian Fromm. Really glad to have you with us. Easter is uh, is coming our way. Uh, we got Good Friday coming up and then Easter Sunday where we celebrate the, the, the risen Savior. And, and we could just, uh, yeah, it, it is just exactly that. It's a celebration. And my, my prayer for you, my hope for you out there is that, is that your excitement level is building. If it's not, I would encourage you uh, to slow down at some point this week. Read the story again in Scripture. Take some time to pray and, and think uh, and meditate upon uh, the week of Holy Week and all that our Savior went through when he hung on the cross and then when he rose again and all that that means for us. My prayer is that we would not fly past Easter this week uh, but that we would remember uh, and we would be in awe and that that would drive us to thankfulness and to worship. So Easter week, a big week for those of us who are Christ followers. Today was a big morning for me. Uh, like many of you, I was able to go get my first shot of a vaccine today. So that was this morning. Some of you are listening right now going, man, that's awesome. Great for you. And some of you are listening going, uh, you're a fool and I can't believe you're, you know, that's the mark of the beast or whatever else it might be. And everywhere in between, all good, all good with the opinions. Uh, I know for me, I was very excited to do it, to keep moving forward. Light at the end of the tunnel is what I keep saying. I did my homework on this uh, and felt comfortable getting it. Uh, it's tough to get appointments around here. So I made a drive down to Chicago this morning was able to get the vaccine and it just feels like, uh, you know, it doesn't take the vac, it doesn't take the virus away. Uh, and it doesn't mean that everything's back to quote unquote completely normal, but it feels like the step in the direction of some greater normalcy. So very exciting for me. I was very excited to do it and excited looking forward to hopefully still, I know. Uh, I watched the Today Show this morning, and of course, their headline was impending doom. And I understand that some numbers are ticking up, uh, but I'm still holding on the positive hope that things are moving in the right direction here. That as vaccinations increase, as the weather gets warmer, uh, that we are going to keep moving forward here. And so I uh, was able to do my part today. Very excited about it. The CDC, in fact, said that Pfizer and Moderna, I got the Pfizer vaccine the CDC came out and said Pfizer and Moderna COVID vaccines are found to be 90% effective in real-world study. Uh, the CDC director called the results tremendously encouraging. And so uh, very excited to do that. I don't know if you've gone out there and gotten your vaccine yet, but uh, it is a reminder. I know I'm a pastor uh, of a church here, Four Corners Community Church in Darien here in Illinois. 
And just this Sunday, we had some more people come back because they got vaccinated and they felt like they could come back and they could take that step. And so uh, very excited for that. I wanted to talk about another article that I saw by Eric Geiger at ericgeiger.com. He blogs often. He writes often. Uh, He he weighed in on uh, political division. Uh, We've talked about this a lot on the show that uh, culturally, but also in the church, we live in a very politically divided time. I had saw two of people in my church going at it on Facebook yesterday, which is never a good thing, but that's besides the point. But going at it over issues of right and left, conservative, progress, whatever else it might be. And, uh, you know, the election didn't end the political divisiveness. And we have to wrestle with not only what does it mean for us culturally, but what does it mean for us um, in the church? And what's the uh, what's the answer going to be? Is there actual opportunity for unity within the church? Is John 17 actually possible? And what would the effect be not only on those within the church, but what would the effect of unity be in a divided culture? But unfortunately, I think most people look at the church and see it as divided as the culture around us. And in fact, many people who aren't a part of the church see the church, see the evangelical church in particular as part of the problem. And so the question is, what do we do? What's the way forward? And with that in mind, Eric Geiger wrote this, three ways Christians should live in a politically divisive time. I thought this was a good way to start the show uh, as we talk about vaccines and the divisiveness that that brings about, masks and the divisiveness that brings about, uh, the 2020 election and the divisiveness that brings about, and everything, divisiveness around everything. And so Eric Geiger writes three ways Christians should live in a politically divisive time. He writes, for many people, this has been really challenging and politically divisive time. If uh, if it has not been for you, it is likely you only spend time with people who think just like you, which isn't good for you, Geiger writes. The good news is that we are not the only Christians to live in a politically divisive time. So thankfully, we can learn from those who have gone before us. Here are three ways we should be living. Number one, Geiger says. Remember, our first allegiance is Jesus and his kingdom. I think this is number one for a reason. He says, few would admit politics or political ideology has become their God or their religion, but we are wise to ask the Lord to which our hearts, uh, to search our hearts. I'm sorry. Where have you placed your hope? Who has discipled you this last year, Jesus or your favorite news anchor? What are you most passionate to speak about? Trusting something other than Jesus, he writes, ruins us. Ultimately, our citizenship is in heaven. As much as I love America, America is not our forever home, Geiger writes. Uh, We won't be around the throne in eternal glory celebrating America. We will be celebrating the worth of our God. So that's number one. Number two, he says, be convinced and kind. The Apostle Paul once dealt with a serious divisive issue among God's people. Do they eat meat that is sacrificed to idols? Some were saying, yes, we can eat meat because the Bible says everything is clean, that that idol is not real anyway. Others were saying, no way. Paul told the Christians to stop judging one another to promote peace. He wanted the Christians to be convinced in their own minds and kind to their brothers and sisters. So we, too, can be convinced and kind at the same time. It is easy to be convinced and not be kind, and it is easy to be kind and not be convinced. But to be both kind and convinced takes 
maturity. That's number two. And Geiger's point number three, engage more than politically. He said, compared to God's people throughout the centuries, we are a rarity in that we have a political voice and vote. Most Christians throughout the centuries lived under a monarchy with no political voice. In fact, when Peter and Paul wrote to pray for our leaders and honor them, they were writing about leaders who could kill them. The early believers did not have a seat at the political table, but they still cared for all that the Lord cared about and found ways to serve and represent Christ. Uh, Larry Hurtado in his book, De- Destroyer of the Gods, pointed out that Christians in Rome were passionate for all ethnicities, the poor, a countercultural sexual ethic, and the children who would be killed by infanticide. May our political voice not make us complacent in finding ways outside of politics to care for all the Lord cares about. We should engage politically because we can, but we can and must engage more than politically. A great article there by Eric Geiger, how we Christians can live in a politically divisive time. Well, coming up next, John Fuller, vice president of the audio team at Focus on the Family and co-host of the Focus on the Family daily broadcast. John Fuller is going to join us next here on The Common Good, AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm. Really glad to have you joining us today. And we are thrilled to be joined by John Fuller. John is the vice president of the audio team at Focus on the Family and co-host of the Focus on the Family daily broadcast. Now, you can hear Focus on the Family every weekday at 1130 a.m. right here on AM 1160. It's a great program. We're so glad to have them on the station. John, how are you today? Thanks for joining us. I appreciate it, Brian. I'm doing very well. Thank you. And always glad to talk to you, and especially at this time of year. What a what a great time it is for Christians to think about Easter and to uh, head into the weekend uh, celebrating Christ. That's right. It's like I'm a pastor as well, and so it's such a uh, it's such a high energy and just such a big week to just kind of slow down also and think about. Now, I, it's a great jumping off point, as you said. There, uh, we're celebrating Easter, but there are some people out there this week who are celebrating it virtually again for the second straight year. And I'm wondering if, if there are people out there who are doing that, if you could offer some encouragement who to those people who don't feel maybe comfortable oh. being in person, but they are just longing to be together, especially at Easter. Sure. I appreciate that, Brian. And I'll just, um, I'll let you know, just personally, this is going to be a, a first Easter in a long time for my family to actually be in uh, the church building with our uh, brothers and sisters uh, with whom we uh, we usually get together mm. every Easter for I don't know ten or twelve years now we've been up in the mountains in a cabin um, maybe by ourselves or with one or two other families so we've traditionally um, been celebrating Easter just quietly so I'm really looking forward to being together with uh, others but as I reflect back on on kind of the quieter ones when we've been up in the mountains. Um, it does feel different. Mm. Uh, I, I personally have felt a little bit of pressure to bring a sermon. I was just talking to my wife about this yesterday. It's sort of like, yeah, I, 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 I feel like I have to, you know, bring the goods. I'm not the <laughs> pastor, but I got to have some meaningful thing. Yeah. We have, we might have 14 kids of, you know, from eight to 28. How do I reach all of them? And, and where I would go back to, to just to encourage our listeners who maybe can't uh, get together in a fellowship situation is 
spend some time taking advantage of the quiet. This culture doesn't allow us quiet. Right. We don't get away with Jesus like he got away with his father. So take advantage of that and lean into it and spend some unbroken time in the scriptures. Don't let anything interrupt you for an hour or two and spend time talking with the Lord and reading the story of of Easter is right. captured in the Gospels and and dwelling on the moments you see there because that's that's a whole timeline condensed into pages, just a few pages. Yeah. Uh, so I, I know that we are wired for relationship and community, and certainly there are virtual ways to connect with people. Um, but but let this be a time, even if you're lonely, for the Lord to speak because He's He's close to those who are brokenhearted and are lonely in in spirit. So. We know God cares, and we know that it's not about what you do on Easter that he's going to be, you know, doing handstands about. Yeah. It's who are you, and are you relating to the God of the universe and spending time with him? Yeah. We can all do that. It's just, I think, easier to some degree when we don't have all the encumbrances of, you know, the, the meal that I have to get back to. And, and, and am I going to be safe enough, you know, in this situ- situation? There, there are so many things that keep us away from just communing with God. Let that be an opportunity for you. Yeah. And so, uh, John, there's so much in uh, right now for the past year, so much of the talk has been about darkness, about death, about struggle. Uh, and now it's been going on for a year. How, how does the, the Easter message of hope kind of give us better perspective for what we're going through? How does the message of Easter serve as part of the solution to all of the struggle that we've been seeing around us? Well, I'll I'll try to condense this thought. Um, I've been in the Gospel of John, chapter 18, and I've been thinking about Jesus, who was going into the darkest moment anyone has ever faced, right? I mean, mm-hmm. this is Jesus, the, the, the person who spoke the world into being with the Word. This is Jesus who knows every man's heart. He had spent 33 years walking the earth, and he was in the garden praying when Judas brought what could be as many as 600 armed men mm. to take him. And here's the son of God on mission, on point, unafraid. And he says, who are you looking for? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And he simply said three words, I am he. Mm-hmm. And when he did that, they drew back and fell to the ground. The power of the word that created this world that spoke universes into being was somehow divinely unleashed in that moment, I think. And the glory of God was revealed in just a small way where Jesus was saying, I'm about to go to the worst thing imaginable. I am not afraid. I am he. And they finally did take him and he didn't do what he could have done. He didn't Mm -hmm. call down a legion of angels and say no. So I know that we've all been through dark times and for some of us, it's not lifting. It's just getting worse. Mm-hmm. There's loss upon loss. Mm-hmm. But the guy that was in the garden, the man Jesus, who spoke those words, I am he, he's on the throne now because he died and rose again. Mm-hmm. He is our hope. He is our joy. He is our source of comfort and understanding, even when it's the darkest moment of our lives. Absolutely. And, and it might be helpful for people to hear, do you, do you have a personal story, a personal experience where you've seen a dark situation be be transformed into joy? Well, yes. And, and, and it's not because the circumstances 
themselves mm-hmm. turned out like all hunky dory wonderful. Um, we've been on a really interesting 17 plus year journey of raising a special needs child. And um, we've gone through a lot of heartache. We've had to let go of a lot of expectations. We thought we knew what parenting was, but no, we, we don't have a clue. And we've gotten to a point, uh, Brian, of being able to find joy in the midst of the craziest circumstances. Mm. It's like, are you kidding me? Are you serious? This happened or he said that or he's talking about what? And and when he goes to those crazy places, we we do have a joy that's not a happy, everything's wonderful joy. We have a joy of knowing my God's got this. My God made this kid. My God knows where he's going. I'm along for the ride. My my job is to love him like God does. And I'm learning a whole bunch about how God loves in this process. That is a deeper joy than anything the world can give me. And it's not because, hey, it's all better. Mm-hmm. It's because my God's got this. That's powerful. And uh, we're thrilled to have you on, John. And one more question for you. Yeah. As believers, we have this hope in Jesus being risen, right? We proclaim on Sunday, he is risen, and we do that with great joy. How do you talk about this holiday with a non-believer, non-believing family member, maybe a neighbor? How do you talk about Easter? Yeah. And and I, I have to preface this by saying, I don't have lots of conversations about Easter with people who don't observe it in some form or fashion. Mm-hmm. Uh, actually, one of my kids doesn't observe Easter, mm-hmm. and that's a story that's unfolding, and I trust God for that story to continue. Um, I've got neighbors that are sort of religious, and so for me, the challenge isn't the person that um, that doesn't have any sense of religion. It's the person who has a sense of religion, but it, it's, it's hollow. Mm-hmm. And so I just try to point to Scripture because I know there's power in the Word, and I try to point to the hope that is within us because of Jesus. And I try to do it respectfully because my job is to plant seeds. My job isn't to win, you know, win a prayer at the end of my conversation with this person. So I just try to respect people for where they're at, trust in the wonderful sovereignty of God, know that he wants them to come to him and try to live in an authentic, winsome way that says, I love you. God loves you. Let's take it from there. That's great. Well, John Fuller is the vice president of the audio team at Focus on the Family and the co-host of the Focus on the Family daily broadcast. Uh, You can hear Focus on the Family weekdays at 1130 a.m. right here on AM 1160. And to learn more about Focus on the Family, uh, you can visit FocusOnTheFamily.com. John, such a joy. Thanks for coming on. Uh, We always enjoy having you on. Brian, thank you. Thanks for what you do, the proclamation of truth and... He is risen. He is risen indeed. That is John Fuller. Thanks so much for joining us. You're listening to The Common Good, AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160. Hope for your life. My name is Brian Fromm. Really glad to have you with us on this Tuesday afternoon. Well, fascinating article of Christianity today. It's a little long, so we're just going to touch on it a little bit here. But it comes about this topic that is a huge debatable topic right now. It is the idea of religious liberty. The Bonnie uh, Christine or Christian writes this, is religious liberty really a dance with the devil? Uh, Tertullian, Roger Williams, and John MacArthur debate the perils 
of freedom. Let me just get us into it. She says, until recently, I would be, I, I would have been surprised to see that question raised at Christianity Today. We might disagree about what religious liberty entails or how it should be acquired or used, but the value of free religious exercise has long been assumed across political lines in American evangelicalism and the United States as a whole. But a series of recent comments from pastor and theologian John MacArthur reject that value in vehement terms. It's an about face for MacArthur personally, but the more pressing question to me, the author, is whether his new perspective will spread. The view he outlines includes some truth, but it recklessly jettisons longstanding and important uh, Christian convictions. Last summer, when lawsuits proliferated over California's unusually strict pandemic limits on in-person worship, MacArthur and his Grace Community Church in L.A. were all about religious liberty. An August statement from Jenna Willis, an attorney defending them, decried L.A. County's clear defiance of the Constitution's mandate to protect religious liberty. MacArthur went on Fox News saying the same thing. Half a year later, though, MacArthur was adamantly opposing religious freedom from the pulpit. His first uh, sermon to include this was January the 17th when he said, I don't even support religious freedom. Religious freedom is what sends people to hell. To say I support religious freedom is to say I support idolatry. It's to say I support lies. I support hell. I support the kingdom of darkness. You can't say that, MacArthur said. No Christian with half a brain would say we support religious freedom. No, we support the truth. He continued a week later, January the 24th, when he said, now I told you last week that I do not believe as a Christian that I can support strongly freedom of religion because that would be to violate the first commandment, right? Have no other gods. Well, you say, well, that doesn't, well, doesn't the church need freedom of religion to move forward? And MacArthur answers that uh, question. No, in no way does any political law aid or hinder the church of Jesus Christ. We are separate uh, kingdom. He returned to the topic again on February 28th. I said I couldn't fight for religious freedom because that would be fighting for Satan to be successful because every single religion in the world except the truth of Christianity is a lie from hell, he said. You say, well, isn't religious freedom important for Christianity? He said, no, it's meaningless. And in a state of his church address on March 3rd, MacArthur said defending religious freedom is, quote, fighting for idolatry and looking for alliances with, with Satan. So there's a lot there. The author goes on to say, I've quoted MacArthur at length here because this is strange new territory for an evangelical figure of his influence. There's been a debate among political conservatives for years about the value of religious liberty and the classical liberalism more broadly. Participating evangelicals like guy who's been on our show, uh, writer David French, are typically pro-freedom, arguing that for all its flaws, it's the best we've got. MacArthur now seems to disagree. Some of what he said is quite right, of course, that the kingdom of God is distinct from the kingdoms of the world and legal favor isn't necessary to spread the gospel and grow the church. As an Anabaptist, I wholeheartedly endorse MacArthur's assertion that Christians, quote, don't need the government to expedite the gospel. MacArthur is also correct in his repeated contention that the Bible doesn't advocate democracy. Indeed, the wide difference between our governance and that of ancient Near East is a big reason it can be so difficult to define faithful Christian interaction with the state. Nevertheless, there's a long Christian tradition of supporting religious liberty, particularly in contexts like ours, where the government solicits our opinion and purports to reflect our will. Right in the third century, Christian theologian uh, Tertullian argued for religious freedom 
to an official in Carthage. He said, we're worshipers of one God. You think that others too are gods whom we know to be devils. However, it's a fundamental human right, a privilege of nature that every man should worship according to his own convictions. It is assuredly no part of religion to compel religion to which free will and not force should lead us. Uh, And it goes on to say, but let me end by reading at the very end here of how the author ends here. She says, that confusion is why I've chosen these two examples from church history, penned as they were in very different contexts. Tertullian was a Christian in a persecuted church appealing to an official hostile to Christianity. Uh, Williams, who she quotes earlier, you can go back and read the story, was speaking to Christians wielding the sword against siblings in Christ. My own view is that we're moving from a situation more like Williams is to more like Tertullian's. An irreligious majority is coming or is already here, depending on how you measure it. Religious liberty is increasingly viewed with suspicion, seen as a ploy for uh, special privileges or a way to deprive others of their rights. That perception makes judicious Uh, defense of religious liberty, a needful and urgent work, she writes. It would be incredibly foolish to abandon the cause of religious freedom, especially now. MacArthur is right that God's kingdom doesn't require that freedom to grow, but what pitiful kingdom he must imagine if he thinks, quote, Satan will be successful if people can worship as they choose. I think that that we're just confusing what's going on here. I, I agree with this author that that religious freedom for all against the state That's what we're talking about. We're not saying that all religions are equal in our eyes and that there are now multiple ways to the father. But what we are saying is as it relates to the state government, that we need freedom for all religions so that there can be freedom for our religion. Like what happens when you're not the majority? So I agree with MacArthur that the church doesn't need the state and this and that, but, uh, but the religious freedom of all uh, is going to ensure our own religious freedom. And, and as the waves of culture are increasingly beating against us, that is an essential and important thing. Maybe you disagree. Uh, a really good article there at Christianity Today. You can find it at our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram page. Well, coming up next, we're going to talk about a uh, just an interesting tweet that I saw. It's not groundbreaking, but just something I would love to discuss. That's coming up next here on The Common Good, AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey friends, welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm, really excited to have you with us on this Tuesday afternoon. I've said this many times on this show, I am a New York Mets fan, uh, a a very uh, passionate New York Mets fan. Baseball season is about to start. And uh, couldn't be more excited about that. Mets opened up Thursday night uh, at Washington. Jacob DeGrom, Max Scherzer. Uh, but the Mets have, uh, they traded for just a superstar, Francisco Lindor. Uh, and the Mets have a new owner who is worth like $14 billion. So everyone's like, oh, we're just going to spend. Well, Lindor and the Mets, Lindor's going to be a free agent at the end of the year. And uh, Lindor uh, said he'll he'll negotiate up until the start of the season. So basically, they set a deadline for Thursday. I haven't seen the news today, but as of this morning, uh, Lindor had turned down the Mets' quote unquote final offer: ten years, three hundred and twenty-five million dollars. Now, I'm never going to be a professional baseball player, but can you imagine having the ability and the courage to turn down ten years? $325 million. The rumor is he wants 12 for 400. 
But man, if you can be a professional baseball player, that's the way to go. So uh, I, I'm I'm happy that my team made a run at him. But it does it looks like he's going to play this year out and go to spring training. Same thing for the local clubs. The Cubs kind of lowballed Anthony Rizzo a little bit, and he did not sign an extension. Chris Bryant's going to be a free agent at the end of the year. Javi Baez, Wilson Contreras. Uh, so the Cubs, if you're a Cub fan, your team could look very different at this time next year but uh the the economics of sports but particularly the economics of baseball good night guaranteed 10 year 325 and he turned it down to this point so i'm still hoping the mets sign up between now and thursday but uh mets twitter let's just say is not showing uh much uh optimism about that happening so i love the mets i love baseball i can't believe that baseball is opening this week uh, then you got the Final Four and the Masters, all the sports rights of spring that we can look towards and maybe even getting out to a ball game uh, and enjoying it. So anyway, that's uh, that's my that's my baseball take for the day. Well, I wanted to read a tweet uh, about so I don't know this person, someone named Reagan Rose. He says, uh, Twitter, I write about personal productivity and the Christian life creator at Redeeming Prod, and, which I'm assuming stands for productivity. Uh, redeeming productivity. He wrote this. Ready? Just a just a really simple uh, one-liner. Uh, he said, "The simple choice of picking up your Bible before you pick up your phone in the morning is a cosmic act of defiance against your own sinful heart." Let me read that one more time. Uh, the simple choice of picking up your Bible before you pick up your phone uh, in the morning is a cosmic act of defiance against your own sinful heart. There's a a bunch of things to unpack there. Cards on the table. I am not good at this. Uh, My phone sits by my bed. It's plugged in. That's where it's plugged in. And and generally, I wake up, uh, and one of the first things I'll do in the morning is check Twitter just to see, and my email just to see if I missed anything. Uh, So I am not talking about this from a place of uh, of. Uh, doing well with this. I'm talking about this of a place of being challenged by this. But the simple choice, he says, of picking up your phone before you pick up, uh, picking up your Bible before you pick up your phone in the morning is a cosmic act of defiance against your own sinful heart. Why? Because when you pick up your phone, you immediately turn your brain on. You're immediately in productivity mode. You're immediately starting your day. Uh, right. And, and we talked, we talked about the social dilemma. We've talked about the ways that our phones are set up, that they are set up to engage our brains in very uh, specific ways. And it really kind of forms our day, forms how we're going to go. We are off and running. So he says, picking up your Bible before you pick up your phone is an act of defiance. Why? When we read our Bible, it doesn't necessarily forward our productivity, right? Now, we as Christians would say, yes, it actually does an enormous amount to our productivity towards who we are as a person. But I'm saying like moving my day along, getting things done, being informed, moving, uh, getting my day going. And so really what you're doing when you pick up your Bible first is you're acknowledging what I need to be first and foremost is under the word of God. What I need most in my life is to be nourished, is to be fed by God's word. And that I am going to ignore my phone, the emails, the Twitter, the Facebook, the text. I'm going to ignore this. And I'm going to first, I'm, I'm going to put first things first. 
and I'm going to read my Bible. Again, I'm not good at this. So I'm not lecturing you here. I think I want to wrestle with this uh, with you because he says it's a simple choice, but in many ways it's a really difficult choice, isn't it? I, I guess underneath this quote is this question, do we believe that reading our Bibles uh, is that important, that it's that transformative, that it's that foundational? Because a lot of times uh, I will ignore reading my Bible. I will ignore prayer in seasons where I lose sight of the importance of them. We do what we think is important. Yeah, we could do it because we should, or somebody told you know, a pastor preached a sermon that said, do this, but that doesn't last. What's really compelling is when we go, oh, no, no, I need God's word to center me, to orient my life, to hear the good news yet again. And I need to commune with my heavenly father in prayer. Before I do anything, that's what I need to do. Not what I should do, but what I need to do. And our culture tells us, be productive from the moment you wake up. Get on your phone. Get on your laptop. Start. Run, 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 run. And a lot of times, the things that go to the wayside are things like reading my Bible and prayer. Uh, that's why this is such, a, he calls it, an act of, against, of defiance against our own sinful heart. Our sinful heart says, no, it's all about me. When I pick up God's word, it says, no, it's all about him. And he's my savior. He's my Lord. He's my heavenly father. Uh, and so that's, uh, I wanted to read that just to challenge us today, just to say, hey, how do you start your morning? Do you agree with this guy's tweet? Is he right? What role does reading the Bible even play in your life? Again, that's a Tweet there, the simple choice of picking up your Bible before you pick up your phone in the morning is a cosmic act of defiance against your own sinful heart. Somebody did answer their tweet. Somebody did respond and said, of course, my Bible is on my phone with a smile face. So that is the world that we live in. Well, glad that you are joining us today. Coming up next hour, we're going to be joined by Richard Stearns, the president emeritus of World Vision U.S. He's going to join us next to talk about several books that he has, including his just released Lead Like It Matters to God, Values-Driven Leadership in a Success-Driven World. We're going to do that next here on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Coming up this hour, preachers and their sneakers. Tom Hanks has some reflections on the pandemic. And we're joined by the president emeritus of World Vision U.S. That's Richard Stearns. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good. AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm. Really glad to have you with us. Uh, on this Tuesday afternoon, we hope that you're having a great day. Uh, we're looking forward to Easter this week. It is coming, it is just in front of us. And uh, my hope for all of us is that we would slow down. Uh, it can be so easy to just burn through Easter and, and not even reflect upon what it is that we are celebrating. And, you know, we need to all be reminded whether this is the first Easter that you've been a Christ follower or the 50th, we need to be reminded uh, of the good news of the gospel, that he is risen, uh, that we walk through this week and we get to Good Friday and we are reminded of the brutal arrest, beatings, and death of Jesus Christ as he hung on the cross for our sins. But then we come to Sunday and, the, and we can proclaim and celebrate his victory uh, that 
that the tomb is empty, that he is risen. And that is the essence of Easter. And so it's much more than am I seeing my family or not in the midst of this kind of pandemic? Am I, do we have reservations for dinner? What's the weather going to be like? It is supposed to be beautiful. Uh, But it's be reminded again, be in awe of what this is all about and allow that to fuel your thankfulness. Allow that to fuel your worship. It's Easter week and it's a big celebration for those of us uh, who are Christ followers. Well, I wanted to touch on something that Ian and I talked about about a year ago, uh, and it was this uh, Instagram account that went everywhere called Preachers and Sneakers. Uh, You might remember it. It was an anonymous Instagram account uh, that kind of started highlighting. uh, It kind of started as a joke, but then it got crazy, and it was highlighting the amount of money that some pastors and preachers uh, were clearly spending on their clothes and on their sneakers. Hence, it became, became known as preacher sneakers, uh, where somebody was looking at a pastor at one church in North Carolina and realized online that those shoes cost $800. Another celebrity pastor, $500 shoes. Uh, one particular pastor who was wearing a jacket that was almost $10,000. Uh, another pair of shoes that were $8,100. And the list goes on and on. Our, friend, our old friend Julie Royce wrote about this. Uh, that's what I'm looking at right now. And uh, the person uh, who was anonymously behind it kind of came out and said, oh, it's been me. Uh, I believe his name is Ben Kirby. And so uh, it's just I, I don't have much to say about it except to say uh, if you want to be really sad but also kind of chuckle a little bit, uh, I'd encourage you to go check it out because it is crazy. And I remember Ian and I had quite the debate about whether we should care about how much money some pastors are spending on their clothes. And and I think what we landed on was uh, no, but kind of that answer, a no, but, but we do want to ask, what does it say? Why are people buying these clothes that are so much money? Is it an image deal? Is it a, a, a portrayal? One of the people quoted in the article basically says that says, uh, I have to portray a certain image to my congregation. That's where this starts to get dangerous and difficult. But uh, we'll put that up on our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram page. Uh, going back to a story we talked about a year ago, uh, preacher sneakers, preachers and their sneakers. So uh, the one that I really wanted to touch on here from Jen Wilkin uh, uh, at Christianity Today about scripture meditation. She wrote this, scriptural, scriptural meditation promises something better than Zen. Christians don't need mysticism or quiet emptiness for the illumination that comes through repetition. Oh, this is so good, especially in this uh, Easter season. She says, when you think about the practice of meditation, what image comes to mind? Like many, you may picture the caricature of someone seated in the lotus position, eyes closed, hands extended, murmuring a steady stream of um sounds. It's a caricature many Christians don't identify with or even outwardly reject. Uh, The prevailing sentiment is that meditation is for mystics, uh, not for the children of God. But meditation is, in fact, some of you be ready for this, a Christian discipline. Not only that, it's one that should characterize us. Some of you can't handle this. But before you put on your stretchy pants and assume the lotus position for your quiet time, let's distinguish between the mystical practice of meditation and the practice indicated in the Bible. Why should we practice it? What is the object of meditation and how? In Psalm chapter one, we are told that the one who is called blessed is characterized by delighting in the law of the Lord and on it, he meditates day and night. 
When the psalmist speaks of meditating, the object of his reflection is God's law, God's promise, God's works, God's ways. The record of these things would have been found in the sacred writings we now call the Old Testament. Modern day followers of the one true God understand the object of our meditation to include the whole of scripture from Genesis to Revelation. So the what of our meditation is the scriptures, but the why also matters. And it stands in contrast to the meditation of, of the mystics. Mystical meditation is the emptying of the mind for the purpose of ceasing. Those pursuing the benefits of meditation are told to focus on their breathing and quiet their thoughts. She goes on to say that the point of Christian meditation is to fill our minds with the promises of God, to fill our minds with the scriptures, to fill our minds with the word of God. And that that's the big difference. So I don't know, I, as I read this, I, why is this important? Because if you're like me, I grew up believing meditation to be sinful. And it's kind of this meditation that she's talking about. It's this meditation of emptying your mind, kind of uh, this is Zen. Uh, but instead she says, no, no, we see the word meditation throughout scripture. And that over and over again, we are told to meditate, but not just empty ourselves. We're to meditate upon the word of God. And I think that is so helpful and convicting because even uh, if we uh, aren't ones who skip our Bible reading, but we regularly do it, a lot of times we'll just try to get through it. Like it's a homework assignment, right? Like I'm just going to, okay, get through the Bible in a year. I've got to read Leviticus 1 and uh, John 1 today. And let me get it done, check it off on with my day. Like, is that ever how you kind of look at Bible reading? But the reality is that when we meditate upon scripture, uh, it is instead a call to dwell in it. It is a call to chew on it. It is a call to sit in it, that that we don't just run through it, uh, but instead uh, we we sit in it and and we really digest it. Uh, And so the question is, do I treat scripture that way? Do I look at my Bible reading in that way? Because again, if we just see it as homework, that's not good. And in fact, then it becomes a chore. But instead, Psalm chapter one, verse two, uh, we meditate day and night uh, upon delighting in the law of the Lord. The object of our reflection is God, God's promises, God's law, God's works, God's ways, God's word. And that's our focus. And so I thought that was helpful, especially this Easter time, because here's what it takes to, quote unquote, meditate upon scripture. It takes time. It takes slowing down. Be still and know that I am God. That is our call today. So wanted to put that out in front of us. You can find that at our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram pages uh, at Common Good Talk. Well, coming up next, we're going to be joined for two segments by Richard Stearns. He's the president emeritus of World Vision US and the author of a recently released book, just released today, called Lead Like It Matters to God, Values-Driven Leadership in a Success-Driven World. Richard Stearns is going to join us next here on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm. Really glad to have you joining us. And we are thrilled to be joined for the next two segments 
uh, by Richard Stearns. Richard is the president emeritus of World Vision U.S., author of several books and a book that I believe is just releasing today called Lead Like It Matters to God, Values-Driven Leadership in a Success-Driven World. Richard, how are you? Thanks for joining us. Hey, I'm great, Brian. Great to be on your program. Really our pleasure. Hey, before we get going into this book, which just looks fascinating to me, before we dive into the book, why don't you introduce yourself to our audience so they can get to know you a little bit? Well, you know, I've had kind of a crazy zigzag career. So Mm -hmm. I, I have a degree in neurobiology. And then I got an MBA in marketing. (laughs) And then my first job was selling deodorant and, and, uh, and shampoo for Gillette. Then I spent nine years at a toy company, Parker Brothers Games, where I became CEO uh, in my 30s uh, there. Wow. Then I jumped over to Lennox, Fine China, and Crystal. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, I tell young people, if you're planning your career, you know, think again, God has different plans than you do. But so I was at Lennox for 11 years, was CEO there. And then in 1998, uh, I really felt God's call to come to World Vision to lead mm-hmm. my corporate career behind and I spent the next 20 years as the president of World Vision U.S., and it was, you know, the greatest adventure of my life. So anyways, that's uh, my crazy background. If you're 25 and wondering what your life's going to turn out to be like, uh, it's going to take a lot of twists and turns. That is a lot of twists and turns from deodorant salesman to CEO. That's really good. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, And so, Richard, as we said, you got a new book out called Lead Like It Matters to God, Values-Driven Leadership in a Success-Driven World. With all the leadership you've done, I I would just be curious to know why this book and why now? What was your thought process behind writing this book? Well, part of it is I have felt uh, for a number of years now that um, our values, our Christian values are kind of under assault. And Mm. uh, you know, if you just look around, there, there are many corporate scandals. Uh, there's a whole Me Too movement with, with so much uh, sexual abuse in the workplace has come to light uh, in just about every sector of our, our economy and society. You know, we've had our share of uh, ministry and church uh, right. you know, scandals uh, and terrible revelations in, in, in past uh, year or two. And, um, and I think uh, the other thing I feel is that some of the secular leadership paradigms have creeped into the church and creeped into ministry. And I just really wanted to make a statement about that God is more concerned about your character than he is about your accomplishments, that hmm. God will not be impressed at the end of your life with the titles on your business cards, the size of your bank accounts, um, you know, the power and the recognition that you received on this earth. But he will be concerned about the character uh, that you demonstrated. Did you demonstrate the character of Christ in your workplace, wherever you are working yeah. or living or serving? And so I just felt really strongly that uh, Christians need to be values-driven leaders, uh, leading with Christian values and and let, you know, maybe you will be successful. I was successful, but, uh, you know, lead that up to God and focus yeah. on your character. Yeah, and let's keep fleshing out. What is it? What does it mean to be character driven in your leadership or values driven? Maybe practically help people understand how that looks different than a lot of the leadership we see around us in the business world, but also sadly yeah. sometimes in the church world. Well, so most of the leadership books you might read are all about how to become more successful, and mm-hmm. uh, they, you know, more successful leader, accomplish more, do more, achieve more. And there's usually some skill set or paradigm you have to master, you know, some new technique that they've, uh, you know, written about. 
the beauty of values-driven leadership is you don't have to have an IQ of 140 to be mm-hmm. a person of integrity, right? You don't have to be a level five leader uh, to uh, be a person of humility, of perseverance, of courage, of excellence. And so values are available to everyone in the organization. Uh, the janitor can be a values-driven leader or the CEO can be a values-driven leader. And so, you know, as I said a moment ago, I think uh, God is concerned about how do we represent him where we work. Now, I don't care if you work at a church or you work at Amazon or Microsoft or mm-hmm. some big company. How are you taking God to work with you? And basically, the way we take God to work with us is by being people of good character, being people, uh, I quote Second Corinthians 5.20, we are therefore uh, Christ's ambassadors, yeah. as though God is making his appeal through us. So if you're Christ's ambassador, wherever you work and live, um, that's a big responsibility to demonstrate the values and the integrity and the justice and the love of Christ to your coworkers. Yeah. There's one point in your book, I think, that you describe success uh, as a form of idolatry for Christian leaders, which I thought was a, a huge statement because the Bible has so much to say about idolatry. Could you unpack that a little bit about the dangers of making an idol out of success? Yeah. I mean, we are marinating in a success culture. You know, we you know, right now it's March Madness and yeah. it's all about which teams are going to be successful, which ones are going to have the best winning record. Will Gonzaga be undefeated and win the <laughs> national championship? We we celebrate the fastest growing companies, the fastest growing churches, um, the wealthiest individuals and in the Forbes 400. Um, we are we are just surrounded by a culture of success. It's almost like carbon monoxide. It's odorless, but it can kill you. It's invisible. And, and uh, the Bible warns us about chasing after fame and money and, and the love of money is the root of all evil. And so I, I just feel that these values in our country, you know, seep into the church. They creep into our leadership uh, paradigm. So, you know, I, I think God is, is calling us to put those things aside and uh, focus on the things that are really important in our lives. And, um, you know, God is calling us to be faithful, not successful. Mm-hmm. Don't let success become your idol. Yeah. Could you speak to, I, I'm a pastor, so I do, I'm a pastor and also do this radio show. And uh, sadly, doing this radio show, we've talked so often about pastors who have failed and churches who have failed, like what's our scorecard as a church and this and that. Uh, talk a little bit about um, the influence or the effect on churches uh, as we kind of get this wrong. And it becomes about success in churches, because it's one thing to talk about this in the business world, but I think it's an equally as a problem in the churches. So what do you see going on in churches and what is problematic when we buy into kind of uh, the cultural idea of success-driven leadership in the church? Well, I, I would just, I might just contrast two hypothetical pastors. One is the pastor of a hugely successful megachurch, mm-hmm. um, 20,000 people on nine campuses. And, uh, the other is uh, a rural pastor pastoring for 50 years in a church that's less than 100 people. Mm. There's a lot of churches like that in America. That's right. So which pastor is more successful? Well, you know, obviously the answer in, in a worldly sense would be the, the megachurch pastor. But see, God looks through a different lens. It, it may be that the, the country pastor in the small church has been faithful uh, in everything that that's the right. Lord has given him or her to do. And you know, they've they've just gotten up every morning. They've gone to turn the lights on at the church, get ready for the <laughs> Sunday service. They've sang in the choir, preached the sermon, and then, you know, chair the committees. And they go home weary at night. And uh, the megachurch pastor may have a massive staff, and they may have, you know, all of these goals and 
you know, objectives and, um, but the Lord's looking at the heart, right? Uh, yeah. What's in the heart of each of those pastors. And I think we're going to be shocked that, you know, the people at the head of the line in heaven may be some of these country pastors that pastored 60 or 70 people for their, their lives. And, and, you know, some of these big, more famous people, and I'm not pointing fingers at anybody in particular, but we've seen a few of them fall from grace in recent years. Um, it became about them. It became about their success, their ego, their, you know, uh, their image of themselves. And it wasn't truly about God and about, you know, helping shepherd God's people. So it's really what's inside your heart when, mm-hmm. you know, when Samuel selected David as king, he went through all of Jesse's sons and he picked the one that was even Jesse didn't think was <laughs> yeah. very impressive, you know, David. And, and I think that's going to be uh, the reality. Yeah, it's so good. Again, this is Richard Stearns. He is the president emeritus of World Vision U.S. and the author of a new book called Lead Like It Matters to God, Values-Driven Leadership in a Success-Driven World. I'm curious, somebody like you who's had many different leadership opportunities, various kinds of leadership tasks, uh, who are some of your biggest influences leadership-wise uh, over the years when when you've been kind of learning how to lead? Yeah, that's a great question. And, you know, early in my career, I I had a boss. I only had him for two years, but he was an encourager. You know, he he took this young guy, I was 25 years old working for him, and he helped me believe that I could do anything. You know, he gave me assignments. I'd go off and try to do them. I'd come back and it's almost like a little kid bringing, you know, a, a crayon drawing. And, and he'd say, well, you know, that's pretty good. You've got this right and that right. But then he'd ask me a few questions and send me back. And, and when I got those answers, he'd praise me. He helped me believe that I could, I could do anything. I could be mm. successful. I could, uh, I could handle the things that were coming at me. And, you know, he left after two years. And then seven years later, I became CEO of that company. Mm. And, and I really still attribute it to his encouragement. I had another leader at Lennox when I was coming up through the ranks at Lennox who he just had rock solid integrity. You know, uh, mm. I'm not even sure he was a believer, but, you know, he just wanted to do everything by the book above board with complete transparency and integrity. And I just learned the importance of that in a leader. And then lastly, I I just mentioned, well, I want to mention a couple of things, but I find that a leader can learn from everybody. You know, I learned from people underneath me in the organization. Mm. I learned from people lateral to me and above me in the organization. You can learn things about leadership from, if you're humble enough to listen and willing to listen, you can learn from a lot of people. You can learn a lot of lessons. And the last one I'd mentioned is the pastor who married us. And mm. I, I write about him in the last chapter of the book. He he was one of these country preachers that um, he served in Ithaca, New York, where I went to college, and he ministered over 50 years to Cornell students that were coming through Ithaca for four years or two years for a master's degree or whatever. Wow. And his church never grew above 200 people, never published a book, but man, how many lives he influenced. He was my spiritual mentor from the day I became a Christian. Wow. That, that is encouraging as a pastor uh, to hear that story. So your book is situated, the, the way your book is set up is with 17 character traits of effective leaders. Uh, so, uh, you know, each chapter, a different character trait, but rather mm-hmm. than making you go through all 17, maybe uh, what are two, th- two or three traits that seem most critical uh, in this day and age kind of right now? Maybe you could highlight two or three of the 17. 
Well, it's funny. The first two I write about are surrender and sacrifice. And Mm. my wife, when I was writing the book, said, are you sure you want to start a leadership book with (laughs) surrender and sacrifice? Do you expect anybody to want to read chapter three after that? You know, and and but I, I put them there because the first thing a Christian leader has to do is to say, Lord, not my will, but yeah. thy will. Whatever yeah. I do, I surrender to you. You do with me as you please. And I, I talk about we must surrender our ambitions for Christ's ambitions for us. And once we've surrendered, and surrender is not a one-time event like Grant and and Lee at Appomattox. Uh, Grant, uh, you know, it's it's a daily, yearly thing. We constantly have to be surrendering to the Lord because otherwise, our ego gets in the way, and we start to think it's about us. So surrender, and then the Lord asks us to be willing to make sacrifices. So those mm-hmm. first two, but then I would I would say integrity is critically important. It's the north star of leader leadership. Everybody mm-hmm. wants to work for a leader who has integrity, uh, a person of their word who can be trusted to do the right thing, the fair thing every time. And uh, that leader creates a workspace that in which people can flourish. You know, people don't have to be worried about all the office politics because they know the boss is going to do the right thing and mm-hmm. treat them fairly. Yeah. And then, you know, I'd mentioned humility. Humble leaders are willing to listen to the input and opinions of other people. A humble leader realizes they don't have all the answers, and that's why God has placed other people around them, people made in his image, with unique gifts and talents and perspectives. And a leader who listens well, and this is all throughout the book of Proverbs, it talks about listening to people, uh, listening to wisdom from wherever source it comes from. And that kind of leader is going to, again, create an, an organization that flourishes because the people around you feel valued. They feel like their opinions matter and that the leader is listening to them. And of course, that leader is going to make better decisions too. That's good. Uh, hey, in the midst of a pandemic, obviously now so many people are working remotely. They're working from home. How would you have dealt with this as a CEO, as a leader? And how do you think this has changed things going forward with so many people working virtually? Well, first of all, I'm glad I didn't have to lead through this because I don't <laughs> yes. envy I don't envy what leaders are going through right now uh, all across the world. But um you know, I think it's really challenging. And so one of the characteristics I write about in a leader that's important is perseverance. You know, mm. uh, when you're facing something really tough, how do I lead this ministry, this organization, these people through this very troubling time that we're in, where there's so many concerns about safety and family and, you know, kids getting back to school yeah. and homeschooling and all of that. So, you know, I think a leader in these times, first of all, has to demonstrate perseverance that you know, when, when a leader shows perseverance uh, against tough odds or tough uh, situations, it really kind of strengthens the resolve of everybody on the team because they, they look to the leader. And if the, if the leader can show them the light at the end of the tunnel and help them believe that, hey, we can get through this. We can do this together. You know, we really can. And, and I know it's tough right now. And, and I hear you. Uh, but just believe me, the Lord's going to get us through this and mm-hmm. we're going to come out the other side and we're going to be stronger when we yeah. come out. So I think perseverance is critical. The other thing I would say is encouragement. Um, encouragement is like a wonder drug. When you encourage mm-hmm. people who work with you, you compliment them, you affirm them, you, 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 you point out their giftedness and their good ideas and you celebrate them in the workplace. I think now more than ever, people need encouragement. They need the boss to say, you're doing a great job. You know, you're killing it. I know it's tough. I know you're at home. I know you're struggling with, you know, two kids trying to do homeschooling, but, (laughs) you know, I really appreciate you. So I think those two things, uh, 
are, are really important right now. Yeah. And, uh, and I do think we're going to come out of this uh, differently. Uh, yeah. Leaders who did a good job, are, their organizations are probably going to come out of this stronger. Mm. Um, but other leaders uh, may come out of this not so strong because of the way they led through this crisis. Uh, uh, I think there's going to be more work from home. I think there's going to be less business travel, you know, yeah. things like that. Agreed. So, Richard, there's so much good stuff here. I've only got like a minute more with you. Uh, let me ask this question. Uh, what do you if you could go back in time and talk to 25 year old Richard Stearns and say, here's the leadership, here's the one leadership nugget I want to tell you uh, as you kind of embark on your career, what would that be? Well, I, I've actually already mentioned it, and it's the power of encouragement. You know, uh, OK, that, you know, I think. uh you know, when you affirm people and you, you know, every person has strengths and weaknesses, right? Mm -hmm. And so you can take two approaches as a leader. Either the glass is half empty or the glass is half full. If it's half empty, you're critical all the time. You know, you didn't do this. You should have done that. I wish you were more like this. If you affirm the positive, you know, you, you killed this. You knocked this out of the park. I loved the comment you made in that meeting. You know, there's a time and a place for criticism, uh, but a leader that really uses encouragement well, um, can get a huge return on investment from their team. Oh, that's great. That's so much good stuff in this book, friends. I'd encourage you to go get it. It just came out today. Lead Like It Matters to God, Values Driven Leadership in a Success Driven World. The author of that book is Richard Stearns. Richard, thanks so much. This was a great pleasure. Thanks for joining us today. Hey, thanks, Brian. My pleasure. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm. Really glad to have you with us today on this Tuesday afternoon. As we go into our evening, something we've been doing over the last couple months, especially during the pandemic, is to try to end us with some encouragement, something to think about. And so when I saw this at the Wall Street Journal, uh, it's written by Tom Hanks. I'm like, oh, I love Tom Hanks. Uh, Tom Hanks is one of the most beloved actors of our time. Uh, and he was also, do you remember uh, when COVID first hit, uh, one of the big things was that Rudy Gobert of the Utah Jazz was, he um, uh, he tested positive and they had to shut that basketball game down and they shut the NBA down. And that's kind of when everything snowballed and, and all the things went crazy with the pandemic. And then we found out less than 24 hours later that Tom Hanks and his wife, Rita Wilson, also tested positive. I remember that feeling of dread like Tom Hanks. Uh, and so... Uh, Tom Hanks wrote, obviously he got better quickly and he's doing fine, but Tom Hanks wrote this, uh, at the, about the pandemic year at the wall street journal it says Tom Hanks on the pandemic year, never play solitaire again. The virus has taught us that life and health are precarious and we must not squander precious time. I wonder what you think about this. Let me just read it short. So I want to read this, this is from Tom Hanks and I, I want you to wrestle with this, chew on it, be encouraged by it or challenged by it. Uh, as you go about your day, Tom Hanks writes this. If in the past year you played solitaire, even a single game, you wasted that time. Take it from me. I played many hands of the game and have nothing to show for the effort. Granted, I had no Zoom schooling sessions to enforce, no children to parent, no job to perform remotely. I did work, but at a studio with strictly enforced COVID-19 protocols, along with a large crew, who had all been bubbled for the duration of the pandemic. During the time of lockdowns, quarantines, and social distancing, solitaire seemed like a harmless enterprise, a salve for the mind and the hands, a safety valve that meant having something to do. 
The deck of cards was right there on the table, and without thinking, my hands would take up the file of 52 to riff and shuffle and cut. A game would be dealt to myself, by myself, in a line of seven cards with a growing pile of face downs. The cards in my hand were revealed in threes, and the blacks were played on the reds and so on, and an hour or so would pass. I would play more solitaire later in the day or the next morning. I never cheated to win. Winning wasn't the point. Getting close was good enough, and there was always another game. So why not deal it out? I might win this time, and what else was there to do? Actually, there was plenty to do. There was a sink to clean out and a dishwasher to empty, laundry to sort, rice to put in the cooker with the timer set for breakfast, letters I could have written, and the typewriter and stationery to do it. Books I had packed in a suitcase were set on a reading stack unread, even though I was sort of always reading one of them. There were floor exercises and yoga stretches to do. I have kids to talk to when they are available. I have business partners to contact. I have friends who are hilarious and interesting. I have scenes to study and work to prepare. I have stories in my head, and I tell stories for a living. And I could have been sketched out, outlined, noted. I could have rewatched Chernobyl on each on HBO. I did get around to doing many of those things. I had lived up to most of my responsibilities and explored a few creative recesses inside my thick head. But those hands of solitaire were accumulated minutes wasted by hoping that a red six would come up or a king would be turned so that I could fill an empty column. What didn't I do instead? COVID-19 has taught us that life and health are precarious that the tiniest bit of your physical world, like a virus can rob us of vitality community, family, and purpose, whether we, we are got sick or not. This pandemic affected us all, costing so much, too much. Our time is limited and finite. Solitaire squanders what is precious. Don't ever play solitaire again. But cribbage with my son, who I can rarely beat anytime. That's Tom Hanks, actor, screenwriter, producer, director, all sorts of other things. Why did I want to end that way? Why did we want to end that way? It's because uh, we have all wrestled it, whether you're famous, not famous, young, old, rich, poor, this pandemic has taken something away from us. And that is uh, the, the, the idea that I always have another thing to do. Like a lot of us, there have been moments in this pandemic where we've just been at home uh, and it's felt like kind of, what am I supposed to do now? And Tom Hanks's point here that I wanted, that I was challenged by, and I wanted the challenges with is, you know what? There's no time to be wasted. In fact, this pandemic has taught us uh, that life and health are precarious and that we have precious time, precious time with our loved ones, precious time with our friends, even if it's remotely, precious time in our work to accomplish. Uh, as a Christian, I would say precious time with our church and with our Savior, precious time with our children. And his point here, I think, is well taken. Are we going to waste it? So your thing might not be solitaire. Your thing might be scrolling Facebook on your phone or Twitter, Instagram. It might just be scrolling. Uh, it might be that mindless scrolling one after where you, have you ever picked up your phone and started scrolling or gotten on your laptop or your computer and started scrolling on social media and asked yourself, why am I doing this again? I just checked this not too long ago. What am I doing? Or sometimes we waste our time. Not a I'm not a believer at all that all watching TV is a waste of time, but there gets to that point. We're just kind of, you know, staring off in the sunset. Are, are there things that we do that you do that are just done to kind of uh, pass the time? For Tom Hanks, it was solitaire. And he came to realize 
there's so many more productive things I could be doing. It doesn't mean you have to produce, but it could just be reading, kind of stretching your mind. It could be making that phone call to a family friend or a family member. Uh, it could just be going out and having a catch with your kid. Uh, this isn't just a pandemic issue. Uh, the pandemic may have highlighted some of this over the past year, but this idea of wasting time. I'm a dad. I have a 17-year-old, a 13-year-old, and 11-year-old. Uh, and I joked about this earlier, but I, I joke because it's true. Uh, it feels like time is going so, so quickly that the days can be long and monotonous, but man, are the years fast that you kind of put your kid to bed one day when they're five and then it feels like they wake up and they're 16. And I don't think anyone ever looks back over their marriage or the or the time that their kids were home or uh, whatever else it might be and look back and go, man, I wish I had scrolled more on my phone. I wish I'd been more connected in those uh, petty Facebook arguments. I wish I'd watched that show, more shows or whatever else it might be. But I do think uh, when we get to the end of our lives, we probably look back and go, huh, I really do wish I'd savored that time more with my spouse. I really wish I had uh, just dove into that time with my kids. I really wish I'd spent more time in community with my friends, with my church, or just in God's words. And so this is a challenge to me, these words of Tom Hanks, that life is precarious. Health is precarious. Things do go quickly. And how are we going to live our days? Now, not under pressure, like I must fill every day. That is not what this is about. But it is to reflect upon how am I using my time uh, to be healthy, but also with those things that are most important. I found that to be a challenge, and I wanted to bring that to us. Tom Hanks on the pandemic year at the Wall Street Journal, never play solitaire again. This is up at our Facebook page. We want to make the most of our time, friends. We want to make the most of our time. There's that famous poem that says we don't control the day we're born or the day we die, but that dash in the middle of that poem called the dash, we can live that out to its fullest. Be challenged by that. Be encouraged by that as you go about your day. We're going to be together again tomorrow from four until six. Until then, my name is Brian Fromm. Glad that you joined us today. Come on back tomorrow. You've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life.